I have been part of this church since before we launched, which was great for me because I love starting new stuff. I love starting new things, being part of that process of new things. God wired me as a creative thinker, as an outside-the-box kind of guy, so I love new stuff. I love progress. I love change. It doesn't take much to get me fired up. It doesn't take much to get me passionate about something. And when I do, I go really hard after it. But see, there's a flip side of that, and there's a problem that comes with that. The passion that I have to start something isn't always there when it comes to finishing that same thing. You know what I mean? Does anybody like that? Or maybe you know someone like that, or heaven forbid you're married to someone like that. Have tough time finishing things. Can I get an amen, Brother Carnahan? <laughs> here's, a, here's a clue. If you have a house filled with half-finished projects, if you've got that room that's all painted except that one last piece of trim that you've never gotten to, if you have baskets that you bought to organize the closet that still sit empty, if you have the exercise equipment that you bought to carry out your New Year's resolution that hasn't even been dusted, much less used since March, if your uh, inbox on your office desk is piled high but you can't even find the outbox, you know, even lost it, pretty good idea that maybe you're like that too. I remember like 20 years ago now that I got fired up about golf. My, my brothers were big golfers, and so I went with them a few times one summer, and I just got bit. You know that thing where you go out and you hit 147 really bad shots, but you hit one decent one, and that convinces you that you could be good at this if you just do it more? <laughs> so I got passionate about golf. Okay, I went out hard after. I ran out and bought all the stuff I would need. I bought a nice set of clubs. I bought golf shoes. bought the expensive balls that were supposed to fly further. And I set my sights on being a good golfer. I played two or three times a week. I went to the driving range, went to the putting green. But then a funny thing happened. The uh, weather shifted, as it is often to do in the Midwest. The summer kind of turned into fall. Fall turned into winter. Got cold, couldn't play anymore. And by the time the weather warmed back up and I could play again, my passions had moved on to something else. And those clubs sat unused. 20 years ago, they've probably been used 10 times since. Okay, what started with great passion and great promise fizzled out over time. I can tell you this, I don't think God cares that my golf clubs aren't being used or that my trim isn't painted, but he will be heartbroken if I treat my walk with him like this. You see it all the time. Someone gets saved. They get their passions reignited by a retreat or a message. They decide to go hard after a walk with Christ. They run out and buy all the stuff. They get the three-inch three inch thick study Bible, a handful of highlighters, a journal, ictus fish for their car, the WWJD bracelet. And they got all the stuff. But, but then the weather changes and life gets tough and the initial passion they had wanes. They get discouraged, and in some cases, they simply quit. So how can we keep that from happening to us? How can we not just get fired up, but stay that way for a lifetime? We're going to look at the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're going to be walking through the first 13 verses of this chapter. If, if you don't have a Bible with you today, the ushers are going to come. We'd love to get one in your hands. We're going to be stepping through this verse by verse. It'll be great to have one in your hands. Chapter 12 here, the writer of Hebrews is picturing the Christian life as a race. 
So before we even begin to read, we need to flesh out this idea of what a race means. What are the elements of a race? Well, for one, you can't run a race accidentally or casually, at least not well. There's an energy and an urgency that is required if you have any hope of winning or even finishing. There's a sense of purpose and direction that is implied. Otherwise, the author would have simply said, as you're meandering along life or as you're wandering through. But instead, he uses this metaphor purposely of running a race. Race has a starting point for sure, but everyone gets off, wants to get off to a good start. But it also has a finish line. And honestly, if you don't cross that finish line, nobody's going to care too much about how great a start you got off to. I know we have a number of people in our church that run half marathons, run full marathons, run the crazy ultra 100-mile thing. We have people that actually do that. But, you know, if I got them up right here and we took off running, if they kind of started slow and I blasted out as hard as I could, I might be able to stay ahead of them for, well, let's be honest, maybe 20 feet if I'm lucky, okay? (laughs) But nobody's going to be cheering when I fall by the wayside 100 yards in to the marathon. Nobody's going to be cheering then. Okay, this race is not a quick sprint. It is a marathon. It's a race that lasts a lifetime, and it's a race of endurance. Okay, that's where we're going to begin here as we begin chapter 12. Uh, We're just going to read the first verse right now. Chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, here's the first key to staying strong in the long run. We've got to lighten our load. This race is going to be hard enough for us as it is. We don't want to be carrying around any extra baggage to slow us down. Okay, notice this verse starts with the word therefore. And I think Pastor Tim has taught us well enough. When we see the word therefore, we're supposed to ask, what's the therefore? Okay, very good. I'll tell him you did well in that. Okay, so check this out. Chapter 12 comes... Not surprisingly, right after chapter 11, okay? Chapter 11 is the great hall of faith. This chapter where we read a litany of men and women who live their lives by faith, so much so that the author chooses to use them as an example of what a life of faith looks like. Okay, so we read about Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, David, and how their God and their faith in him was the source of all they were and all they accomplished. So when chapter 12 begins, therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's who he's talking about. All these saints, these men and women of God who have come before us, they stand and surround us like a great cloud of witnesses. Now, I'll admit, it's easy to really read this and picture this great Olympic stadium where there's this massive crowd and you've got Samson and Gideon up there high-fiving in the upper deck and Sarah's got her pom-poms and they're cheering us on, okay? That's, That's really not what this is saying. That's not exactly what the word witnesses here means. It's not that they're watching over us or witnessing our race, but rather they are witnesses to us of the faithfulness of God and serve as examples to us that God will see us through. Their lives point us to find our strength in the same God in in whom they found theirs. You know what they learned? You know what they found out? They found out that God is enough. They found out their own efforts fell short time and time again, but faith in God won battle after battle. They found out that trusting him never fails and that pursuing him is never a waste of time. 
Not that there aren't things that are wastes of time. Okay, there are things that slow us down as we run after him. They make running the race far more difficult than it needs to be. That's why we're told, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Okay, runners in both the Greek and the Roman traditions would train by strapping large weights to their arms and legs. They would run carrying these weights in order to train their bodies and build up their strength and endurance for the race. But no runner would run the, wear these weights during the actual race. What a huge disadvantage it would be to carry around all that extra weight as you attempted to run. Let me show you. Shannon, would you come up here for a second? Okay, I'm going to put a backpack on Shannon here. And... Okay, if I ask you to run, would that be tough with that backpack in there? No problem. No problem, okay. <laughs> Let's see if this makes it any harder. Is that going to make it any tougher? No, not, not that much. He's a strong guy. All right, Let's see. Let's see if we can weigh him down enough. Any tougher? I think we can keep going. If I ask you to run a race now? I think we can go more. I think this one will do it. Back strong. Find out. <laughs> okay, now you want to run a race? No. No, okay. <laughs> All right, here's what we're talking about. Okay, we're talking about running a race with that kind of weight on our backs. All right, you can drop. Give Shannon a hand. <laughs> okay, many of us are doing just that, though, as we run our race loaded down with all kinds of extra burdens. We shot out of the gate pretty fast, but we're carrying so much extra weight, they're getting really tired and discouraged. We see other running, others just running past us, wonder why we can't seem to keep up. I mean, they're growing like crazy. Here I am, Lord. You know I'm trying hard, but I just seem to stand still. Maybe you're carrying too much weight. Maybe your backpack is all loaded up and you can hardly stand, much less run. So what are those rocks? Okay, what are those rocks that we just pictured here? That what is it that we're carrying around? Because I don't think anybody really wants to carry that around as they run. Verse 1 lists two types of burdens for us. First one is sin. Okay, I think that's pretty easy to intuitively understand that it's going to be tough to pursue a holy God, a holy sinless God, if we have sin in our life. Maybe that's exactly what it is for you today. Maybe there is some sin in your life, maybe some sin that you think nobody else even knows about, but it hangs around your neck like a boulder. You can feel it every day and you know that it's there. It is slowing you down, dragging you down as you attempt to run the race. Every time you so much as try to take a step towards God, it holds you down. You get fired up by something you read or by what you hear God is doing in a friend's life. But that passion that you have to pursue him seems to fade as fast as it arrived. Sin is clinging to you and weighing you down. You have a tough time engaging in worship. Your prayers feel like they hit the ceiling and stop. And serving the Lord feels more and more like a chore to be done rather than bringing you the joy and satisfaction that it once did. You're trying to run with a bag full of rocks on your back. Get the junk out of your life, lighten your load, and run your your race more effectively. Okay, how do we do that? 
We're going to spend more time here in a few minutes, but just look quickly at verse 2. You'll see the how laid out for us. We are to lay aside the sin, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is the primary theme of the entire book of Hebrews. The supremacy of Jesus. Simply whatever you think is worth holding on to your life, Jesus is better. Whatever pleasure you think is worth pursuing to find happiness, Jesus is better. Whatever sin you have in your life that is slowing you down in your pursuit of him, it isn't worth it. Turn away from it, surrender it to him, and lighten your load this morning. Besides sin, there are other rocks in that backpack that can also weigh us down. If we're going to run with urgency and with a purpose, it's going to mean purging our lives of anything that does not help us run better. Anything that's going to compete for our time, our attention, and will distract us away from running well. I remember a time many years ago, my first uh, full-time position in ministry in Orlando, Florida. The church ran a preschool ministry, and uh, once a week we would do a chapel for three and four and five-year-olds would come in. We would sing a few songs, and then the senior pastor would do a little Bible study with them and tell them a story. And every week, part of what he would do would go back to review the previous week's story. It would always go something like this. Remember last week, we talked about that guy that built a big boat, and we brought in some animals because God told him there was going to be a big flood. You remember his name? Inevitably, every single week, 20, 25 kids, almost in unison, Jesus! No, no, not, not quite right. Now, uh, we tried again the next week. You, you remember the story we told last week where God created everything, created this garden, and then made this guy to put in the garden, the first man. You remember his name? Jesus! No, no, not, not really. But, but that was the answer every single time. So I remember talking to the pastor after chapel one day. You know, does that frustrate you that they don't seem to remember the story from week to week? And I said, Larry, you know what? They're going to hear these stories over and over. They're going to eventually get that. Right now... I'm content if they believe the only thing they get out of this is whatever the question is, Jesus is the answer. Because that's all they get out of it. Jesus is the answer. The book of Hebrews was written to people that hadn't quite figured this out yet. They had the Jewish faith and customs and had left them to embrace the life of Christ. Yet they were discouraged and tired in their new pursuit, were being tempted to return to their former ways. They needed to be rest assured that Jesus is the answer, that he is better. Maybe you're in a similar spot. Maybe religion is one of the rocks in your bag as well. You may have in your background somewhere an understanding of the Christian life as a series of rules to follow or as a checklist to be completed. Those can weigh you down and bring your run to a stop. Pursuing Jesus is better. You could be weighed down by worry, be weighed down by a need to control everything. Look in verse 1, and it says, this race is set before us. And that means it's been appointed to us or chosen for us. We're not choosing this race. We're not planning this out ahead of time. It's in the hands of God. Trusting Jesus is a better choice. Maybe it's the pursuit of your own comfort that's weighing you down or your possessions, or your habits, or even your relationships. Really, if we're going to take this race seriously, we have to start looking at everything in our lives through the lens of asking, is this slowing me down in my pursuit of Jesus? We're going to have to be willing to sacrifice even something that may be good to pursue the better. And I promise you, Jesus is better. So what is it? What is that rock 
that Jesus is asking you to throw away today? We all have them. The question is just which one's going to go first. Excuse me. If we're going to stand strong for the duration of the race, we're going to have to lighten our load. We're also going to need to focus our eyes on Jesus. Read with me here, uh, beginning at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not, have you not rest, resisted to the point of shedding your blood? How are we to run? We need to run looking to Jesus. Okay, Christian, if I called you up here, and I, I won't, you, you can stay seated, but if I called you up here and said, we're going to race, okay, we're going to stand right here, okay, we're get, get ready to go. One, two, three, go! Okay, and we're off. But we have, we've set no parameters, we have no finish line, we have no goal. Are we really racing? No, we're not racing, we're wandering, right? We are literally going nowhere fast, right? You may take off that direction, I may go that way, I might stop for coffee, because if there's no finish line, really, what's the sense of urgency? If I'm not going anywhere specific, eh, how do I even know if I'm running the race well? There's no sense of urgency. There's no drive. There's no really, really no race. Many of us run our race with no understanding of the finish line, no grasp of the goal at hand. And because of it, we end up going nowhere fast. Even if we've unloaded most of the sin, most of the weight in our lives, we still end up standing still or at best wandering around more than we end up really running. So when the Greeks ran the race, they ran with the judge of the race standing at the finish line, holding on to the prize. There was no doubt where the finish line was. Throughout the race, the runners could look to the finish line, keep their eyes focused on the prize at hand. They grew tired and began to slow down during the race. They had their motivation out in front of them to drive them and encourage them on. If they slipped or fell, they had no problem getting reoriented because they could see the finish line out in front of them. The text here is saying that as we run, we need to keep our eyes focused toward the finish line because at the finish line is Jesus. He is the prize at the end of our race and he needs to be our focus as we race. Okay, but this is really important, okay? The goal, the goal is not just Jesus out there, okay? It's Jesus in us, our lives being transformed into his likeness. See, in verse 1, we're told that we have this great cloud of witnesses. These men and women who serve as examples of faith to us. But now here in verse 2, we have a definitive statement that Jesus is better when he's called the founder and perfecter of our faith. What does it mean that he's the founder of our faith? Okay, it means the faith that Moses had, the faith that Noah had, the faith that Abraham was commended for. That faith was Jesus' idea. He was the author of the faith. He pioneered the path that we run. Well, we can appreciate the examples of these great people of faith. Only Jesus sits at the right hand of God as our perfect example. He's the foundation of our faith, and he's the founder of our faith. And he's also the perfecter of our faith. Not only do we look to him as the perfect example of faith, he enables and empowers us to a life of faith. He wants you to look to him 
And that faith that is deposited in your life, he wants to perfect it. It's us shedding off the person we used to be. Us becoming more and more holy. And us being transformed into the image of Jesus himself. That's a finish line worth running to. If you're not sure of that, if you're not absolutely certain that being made more like Jesus is a goal worthy of your life, that idea doesn't fire you up, you're going to live in constant discouragement. And I can promise you the rest of this message is probably going to bum you out. Why? Okay, because this race isn't going to be easy. It's, if you're not pumped up about reaching the finish line, if that's not your motivation, you're going to have a tough time to keep going. If I set out to run a marathon without any real passion to reach the finish line, what's going to happen when I get to mile two or mile 15 when it starts to hurt and I'm tired and really rather be home watching the Cubs game? What's going to happen then? I'm going to quit. I might not quit forever. I might say, well, I'll try again next year. But if I don't have any more passion next year to reach the finish line, the result will be the same. Now I have to stay focused on the finish line. Even here, Jesus is our perfect example because it says that who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He was able to endure the pain and the suffering of the cross because he kept his eye not on the cross, but beyond it to the joy that was waiting at the finish line. But if we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to share in that joy, we're also going to share in his pain. That's why we're encouraged in verse 3 to not grow weary or faint-hearted. Again, the answer is the same. Keep your eyes on Jesus. It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Whatever trial you may be going through right now, whatever pain you are in, it doesn't compare to what Jesus went through on the cross for us. The author even writes, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus did. The point is not to minimize or trivialize the pain we're feeling, but to let you know that it does not have to discourage you. We have a Savior who understands our pain because he endured it at a greater level than we will ever understand. He was beaten till he hardly looked human. He had spikes driven in his hands and feet, and he died the excruciating death of crucifixion on a cross. Not just our physical pain. He understands the emotional pain of being betrayed by a friend. Of being deserted by those who were closest to him. And have a father who turned away. Because one who had never even known sin took on every sin of the world. The pain in your life is slowing you down in your pursuit of him. Or if it's causing you to be tired and discouraged, look to Jesus to give you strength. Keep your eyes focused on him. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases these verses. He says it this way. He says, when you find yourself flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility he plowed through, that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. There was a video that circulated on the internet a couple of years ago. The video was a high school girl named Claire from Ohio. She was a senior and a runner on her high school's cross-country team. She attended the state finals as a junior um, just to watch some friends. Didn't actually make it herself, but she was committed. Our senior year, I'm going to get there. I'm going to run in the state finals. And she did it. She got to the state finals. But just two weeks short of the finals, she was feeling some soreness in her left leg. What she didn't know at that time was she had a stress fracture in her left leg, and it was getting worse and worse as she continued to train. On the day of the state meet, the leg was very sore, but she pushed on. She had a personal best time at mile one, and again at mile two, But with just 400 meters to go, she heard a crack. 
She thought maybe she'd pull the muscle. It was hurting, but she pushed on anyway because she was determined to finish. And at 200 meters, she heard another louder crack. This time she fell to the ground. She made every effort to get back up, but instead her leg gave way and shattered as she crumbled to the ground just 45 feet short of the finish line. The video shows other students just running right past her as she makes a quick decision. She said, I had come so far. Our team had come so far. All season we'd been working for state. And now we were almost there. I was almost done. And there was no way I was going to let the team down. With the finish line in sight, she crawled the final 45 feet and completed the race that she had come to run. Do you have that kind of determination to finish the race, even in the midst of pain? Do you have that kind of clear view of where the finish line is? Can you picture it? Can you see that you in the image of Jesus? If we're going to run well and stay strong in the long run, we're going to have to lighten our load and we're going to have to keep our eyes focused on the finish line. We also have to embrace that we are a child of God. Okay, we've determined already that the goal of our race is us becoming more like Jesus. But here we begin to see how that's going to take place in our life. Verse 4 starts out by quoting from Proverbs 3. It says, in your struggle against, oh, sorry, verse 5, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And this is a quote from Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may, what? We may share his holiness. You see that there, that we may share in his holiness. It's the same process we've been talking about. The same process of perfecting our faith, of making us more like Jesus as he's working on us. How is God going to accomplish that transformation in our lives? This tells us right here. He's going to treat us as his children. This passage begins with this idea. Did you forget that God called you as kids? But if we are children, what exactly does that mean? What are the implications of being a child of God? I think one came pretty, came through pretty loud and clear in these verses, right? It's for discipline that you have come to endure. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, okay, I think you get the point. What is one thing that God is going to do to his children? Discipline, right. Okay, show of hands. How many people love the word, love the idea of discipline? Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay, um, how many of us are parents? Okay, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. How many of you discipline your kids? Now, wait a minute. Okay, there seems to be a discrepancy here. Uh, No one seems to really want to be disciplined, but yet the ones that are parents all agree that discipline is a good thing. So where's the disconnect? Okay, we need to think about why it is that we are disciplining our children. Okay, it's because we love them. We want to stop, we want to see them stop doing stupid stuff, right? For the most part, that's what it is. So we're disciplining them. 
if I didn't really care about my kids, if I didn't really love them, I'd probably be less concerned with trying to shape their hearts. But I do love them. And I'm not content with letting them just try to figure it out on their own. I don't want to see them kind of go through that kind of pain. I want to see them have that kind of consequences of sin in their life. So when the need is there, I don't hesitate to come in, correct, and direct their lives. God's the same way. Only trust me, he is way, way better at it. Okay, it says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. If you are his child, you will feel his discipline in your life. But that discipline is motivated out of his love for you. When we are suffering, it's easy for us to look around at our circumstances and come to the conclusion that God must not love us. But in fact, the exact opposite is true. Verse 8 even says that all his children are part of this. In fact, if he's not disciplining you, you need to take a real close look at your life because you're probably not his child. Okay, it's going to be part of our lives, but that doesn't mean it should discourage us or make us weary. Instead, we should celebrate because its presence there means that we are a child of God and that he isn't content with letting us just stay the way we are. We need to be thankful that he is shaping us to be more like Jesus. We all know what earthly parents do to discipline, right? We do timeouts, groundings, spankings, removal of privileges. What does God's discipline look in our lives? What does that look like? Is he grounding us? Is he making us stand in a corner? How many people have had days where you thought God was making you stand in the corner? <laughs> I have had those days, trust me. But let's be really, really honest here, okay? And this is going to hurt for a second, but be really honest. Quite often, God's discipline involves pain or trials in our lives. That's not to say that all pain in our lives is God's discipline. We bring plenty of it on ourselves. Okay, if I steal from my company and I get fired, I'm pretty sure I shouldn't call that God's discipline in my life. That's just consequences for my own sin. But if I'm a hard worker and I'm honest and I've been loyal to the company, but now my boss is standing in front of me and accusing me of stealing, what now? What do I do with that? How do I deal with that trial? How do I deal with that kind of pressure being applied in my life? This is where it is so critical that we understand where that finish line is. Because if we've got that wrong, our lives are going to be filled with discouragement and bitterness toward God. If I think that he saved me just so I could hang on for dear life until he whisked me away to heaven someday, at the first sign of trouble, I'm going to shut down and my race will come to a stop. If I think that God's goal, his plan for my life, is just to make me deliriously happy, then him bringing pressure into my life makes no sense at all. Every attempt to discipline me will be met with resistance as I fight with God every step of the way. I'm going to look like that two-year-old he always seemed to get behind at Walmart who doesn't understand why he can't have everything he wants and he's kicking and screaming and he probably doesn't even get that that isn't helping his cause any. When we get this right, though, when we understand that God wants to shape our hearts, that he wants to transform us into the image of Jesus, that this is the prize at the end of our race, then we can embrace the discipline he brings into our lives and allow him to use us to mold us. I know what you're saying, but you don't understand. This really hurts. There's pain here. I'm not going to pretend to know what your hurt is today, but I do understand that it hurts, and so does God. If you look on in verse 11, it says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
The trial you're going through, that pain is temporary and it's a sign of God's love in your life. Look past the pain to the change it's going to produce in you. Look past the pressure he's bringing to the finish line where you've been transformed to look more like Jesus. What parent has not said or at least thought, this is going to hurt me way more than it hurts you? As a parent, we can actually appreciate that there's truth in that statement. But in kids, as kids, we had no clue, right? We just knew it hurt and we wanted it to stop. That's all we got. We weren't able to embrace the idea that our parents loved us enough to bring discomfort in our lives for a short while if it would bring about change of thought or attitude that would last a lifetime. Our eternal father's love for us is great enough that he is willing to bring pain into our lives if the end result is us looking more like Jesus. Don't resist that transformation in your life and don't run from the trial that's going to bring it about. But do surrender your life to him with open arms and embrace that you're a child of God. I get this can be a really tough idea for some, especially those whose earthly parents maybe got this totally wrong. That's why verse 10 says, our earthly fathers disciplined us as it seemed best to them. Okay, they're going to get it wrong a lot. If you had parents who were maybe overly permissive, who never disciplined you, then maybe this idea of God disciplining you seems really uncaring, really unloving. I mean, my mom and dad didn't do that. Why would God do that? Or if, on, if you're on the other side and maybe your parents disciplined you not in love, but in anger, and the very idea of discipline streaks, strikes fear in your heart, please know that God disciplines us for our good, never in anger, but in love. God's discipline in the lives of his children is not about punishing us for what we've done. Jesus took care of the punishment part at the cross. Okay, he took it all on himself. This is about, it's not about hitting you over the head with a hammer to beat you into submission. It's a gentle, careful incision of a surgeon. Yeah, it brings pain, but the the pain that's there is very real. But just as real is the healing that it's going to ultimately bring to your life. He loves us. He isn't content to let us stay where we are. Be ready for him to work in your life and be open to the transformation that he wants to bring on you as his child. Finally, verse 12. This begins with the second of our therefores. Told you we would have two. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Don't give up. Don't slow down. If you're tired and weak, be encouraged that Jesus is shaping you to be more like him. Let Jesus on the cross fire you up and lift your drooping hands. Embrace that you are a child of God and let that bring strength to your weakened knees. Throw off everything that's going to weigh you down and run with perseverance and with a fresh sense of urgency. Don't get distracted. Don't get discouraged. Just keep your eyes focused on the prize and run. You know, we're not in this race alone. I mean, look around, okay? If I'm his child and you're his child, that makes us family, right? Okay, some of us might be the crazy uncle that nobody talks about, but like it or not, we are family, okay? It it, it turns out the sense of these words here, when it says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and we can strengthen your weak knees. The The tense that was used here in the original language includes a secondary thought, that didn't translate into the English really well. It's a corporate idea that not only encourages us to lift our own drooping hands, but to lift the hands of our brother or sister who may be feeling weak now. 
They might be discouraged now. They may need their family to rally around them as they run, to encourage them, to care for them, and to keep pointing them toward the finish line. They may be in the midst of pain and need to be reminded that on the other side of the pain, they will look more like Jesus, that they can just persevere and allow him to work in their lives. Love your family. Encourage your family and lift their drooping hands as well. See the path where the pain came from. The path where God brought the pressure down into your life is the very same path where he wants to bring healing. We spoke earlier of God's discipline being kind of like the scalpel of a surgeon. How absurd would it be if we went in for surgery, laid out on the table, and at the first surgeon's cut, we got up off the table, just outraged that he would dare hurt us. We go running out of the room with a big gaping wound on the side of our body as we run away from now the one who can bring healing to our lives. It sounds crazy, but we do it all the time to God. He brings a trial into our life to shape us, but instead of remaining on the path, remaining under the pain, we just bail. Instead of figuring out what God is trying to shape in us, we run away. And now, not only do we have this gaping wound, but now we've separated us from the one who can bring healing to it. Now we're out on our own, and the wound gets infected with anger, with bitterness, and discouragement. That's the idea here that we need to make straight the paths for our feet so that what is lame, that wound that God wants to use to work in our life, doesn't become infected, doesn't become out of joint. Stay on the path that he's laid out for you. Embrace that God is going to be shaping you and molding you into the image of Jesus and surrender yourself to his discipline. So what is it today that he's working on in you? Where is he bringing pressure into your life? Where is his discipline at work to shape you? Are you even open to it? Are you able to see the finish line where you look more like Jesus? Or are you laying on the floor, kicking and screaming, resisting what he wants to do in your life? We are in a race today and the finish line is the greatest prize we will ever know. Jesus and us. Our lives being transformed into his image. Is that your goal in life? Because if it's not, I'll be honest, this race is going to be a very discouraging one for you. But let me tell you that whatever it is you think would be a better finish line, success, happiness, money, this giant checklist of the stuff you did right, whatever that finish line you imagine is, I assure you, Jesus is better. Run hard after him. Don't let anything weigh you down or distract you. Keep your eyes focused on the prize at hand and as a family Let's run the race as children of God that we are. Will you pray with me?